welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigo's Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. Wigo stands for Women in Informal Employment, Globalizing and Organizing. It is a global network focused on securing livelihoods for the working poor, especially women, in the informal economy. In this monthly podcast, we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to social protection from the perspective of informal workers, including debates around the future of work, demographic changes and the informal economy, as well as social services like childcare and health that can protect informal workers' incomes. And in this opening episode, we will discuss some of the more fundamental and general issues about social protection and informal employment. To talk about the linkages between social protection and informal employment, we invite Francie Lund. Francie was a senior research associate at the School of Development Studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa, where she has specialized in social policy. Currently, she is Regal's senior advisor in the social protection program. Francie, welcome to the Informal Economy podcast, Social Protection. Thank you for inviting me. Francie, before we dive into the main topic of this talk on the relations between social protection and informal economy. Could you tell us a bit more about why did we go decide to start a social protection program? The social protection program within WeGo was very closely influenced by the work of the Self-Employed Women's Association in India early on in WeGo's existence. Sewa, the Self-Employed Women's Association in India, found once it had started that the first really priority expressed need of informal workers, of the poorest informally working women, was for some kind of income protection or health insurance related to health services. They knew that person's work conditions affects that person's conditions of health, but also that that person's health condition affects the person's ability to do productive work. And they saw then that trying to extend the coverage of social protection, especially in the fields of health care, of care for children, and for workers who were growing older, was core part of their role. It wasn't going to be simply an add-on once the work of um, developing skills and asset accumulation had been striven for, but that it was actually core basis for workers in order that they could better express demand for the improvement of their own working conditions. So why is social protection and informal economy an important issue now? Although there's evidence to suggest that mainstream social programs can make some difference to poverty, we are all aware of the huge gap, the obscene difference between levels of wealth of the very richest in the world and the middle class and the people who work all their lives, work very often long hours, sometimes work more flexibly so they can look after children and combine that with paid work. But I think that the importance of a different way of looking at social protection, of trying to see what it would mean to make it more universal, has been recognized by some of the best scholars in the world. One of the things that really needs continuing attention is how, say, state social provision for the citizenry as a whole is not usually focused on people of working age. It's focused on children, quite often on moms in the field of maternity services within primary health care. 
which of course affect informally working women, but then also on people with disabilities and elderly people as they start losing their connection with the labor market. Um, although in brackets, of course, the concept of quote-unquote retirement is quite irrelevant to most informal workers. The vast majority cannot rely on state provision for social work. But in countries like Thailand, with regard to older people, and in countries like South Africa, and certainly in, in the northern countries, you can probably either contribute to a work-related elderly pension through your employment, or you will receive some kind of state assistance once you are no longer earning. Just to situate the debate, Different organizations have different views on social protection. You have the ILO, you have the International Monetary Fund, you have the World Bank. Uh, can you briefly go through some of these debates and explain what is the Wiggles perspective on social protection? Certainly, uh, the International Monetary Fund as well, the various global development banks who all feed into both the World Bank and indirectly or directly to the International Monetary Fund as well, and also major global donor organizations, aid organizations. One of the central issues is to get informal work recognized as real work. But the fact is statistics were missing on informal work. You could not get any kind of global estimation of not only of the numbers of informal workers in the global labor markets, but also how many informal workers received any kind of work-related social protection. So we were starting off the basis of very limited hard evidence, except that we Ego works, as you know, largely through the member-based organizations and other affiliated worker organizations, and their own evidence was very compelling about the importance of the broader sense, the broader and more old-fashioned sense of social security, of the input of social programs into enabling people over their lifetimes to have more secure and more reliable incomes because they're able to be more productive, because they're not having to spend so much time on erratic childcare, on looking after elderly members of their own families, those very elderly members who are now looking after their children so they can themselves earn an income, no matter how small. I think it was a terrific input of the International Labour Organization, very much with the technical assistance from WeGo as well, where you've seen over the last 15 years an absolutely fundamental improvement in the statistics. So you have the recognition of informal work being able to be made more visible. And this is, has been of key importance, both in terms of the organization attempting to work as we good as to contribute something to improving the working conditions. You have been working at the Social Protection Program at WIGO since the year 2000. What do you think has shifted since the program started? First of all, I think there has been a real shift, which we hope has been disseminated in global intellectual and advocacy circles on what the word access to social protection means. People say workers have the right to social protection or informal workers should have access to measures of social protection. The street vendors, if I take that example, and WeGo has been very instrumental in getting this onto larger platforms. Street workers who work in central districts are very often surrounded with health facilities. And here a study we did in Bangkok, 
in Ahmedabad and in Durban. All three countries with very different health services, but in all three problems, the issue was the same, that having being able to walk to a local health service doesn't mean that you could use it. You had to be registered in the place where you lived, not at the place where you worked. But people leave the place where they live way before clinic opening hours in the morning and get home way after clinic closing hours. So what does having access mean? How could you start trying to introduce not hugely expensive addition to social protection facilities, but which would make them affordably visitable by informal workers who go to work every day? So I think giving that as a kind of example of moving from the development of the social protection framework where we needed to work sectorally, the needs of waste pickers, for instance, are different to the needs of home-based workers, industrial art workers. So on top of looking at life cycle changes in needs, looking at the specifics of risk in different sectors and the specific risks to poorer working women, we realized that conventional occupational health, which should be looking after the health and safety of formal workers, of course, formal occupational health and safety is blind to the reality of informal workers and certainly hasn't got the capacity in pretty well any country I can think of to really give good health and safety services education, skills development in the area of social protection for informal workers. So we started a path-breaking project in six countries over five or six years, which tried to start looking at what quite specifically mainstream occupational health and safety would need to do to extend its conception and its curriculum in prestigious health institutions globally if it was going to say we actually still have relevance to a global occupational health and safety. And I think another of the bold programs has been the Child Care Initiative, which is trying to get very concrete evidence about how women's care responsibilities, unpaid care responsibilities, influence their ability to do productive paid work if that's what they wish to do. That work is also going forward in a number of countries and again working with our model of doing the research through worker-based organizations. And the third thing specifically to mention is that with regard to your question of sort of what's what would have been breakthroughs in the social protection program, I think it's been work that's been done at the intersection of urban studies and social protection. And I'm thinking of the way that the allocation of spaces is done in the city is very much influenced by municipal regulations, which might have no vertical linkage at all to national programs about urban design or national policies on urban zoning. Social protection schemes are often structured in three main financial sources. You have the government, you have employers, and you have employees. But we know that a large share of workers are in fact self-employed. How is it possible to create uh, provision schemes in such configurations? I mean, that's the $60 million or rand or peso or whatever it is 
question because you don't want to lose sight of the need for universality in provision. But if you go the route, for instance, which would be perfectly possible to do, of the main thrust of the global social floor alliances is about universal basic income. If we were mighty optimists, very hard at saying, and those universal basic incomes must extend to people of working age, the fact is that I would know that that would fail that in countries with fewer resources and with less strong states, that the group of informal workers of working age would precisely be the group to be left out. Informal workers have shown in example after example to be willing, even on low incomes, to make contributions to their own social provision, to make contributions, to participate in commissions, to put in monthly amounts to, to insurance schemes. And so on, but lots and lots of little organizations and little groups, I think, don't tackle the kind of scale that's needed. And I think that there's just no shifting the terms of the important role of the state. I think there have been interesting studies done and are some still being done using in different sectors value chain analysis to show at what points in the chains of production and distribution is there capacity within that production chain or service chain that the owners can make more of a contribution and you could find places where certain levels of workers would be able to contribute as well. But one of the difficulties is how to do work-related provision which takes into account the everyday realities of workers who might work far from their homes, for whom transport is a crucial cost of everyday life, for instance. It's expensive to be an informal worker. It's not just cheaper to be an informal worker. And they're very specific, concrete realities that act as barriers to access. Can you tell us some examples of how innovative schemes have managed to include informal workers in social protection systems? In Zambia at the moment, the International Labour Organization is exploring the possibility of getting better social benefits from the Zambian government, particularly for domestic workers. As a countries in the global south, domestic workers constitute a large part of people who work. Those are overwhelmingly women, although there are many men there too. And there are interesting examples, partly because domestic workers have been, in a number of countries, relatively easier to include in existing schemes. For instance, in South Africa, domestic workers can now belong to both the Unemployment Insurance Fund and the Get Covered by Workers' Compensation. This is a huge step forward for nearly a million workers. Brazil has, in the last Last uh, five or six years, completely changed the working conditions of numbers and numbers of domestic workers, both in terms of the level of income that is now guaranteed, your working status that is now guaranteed, you have to have a work card, and that work card can bring you better access to the formal financial institutions so that you can do your own savings, for instance. In Thailand, the home nets there were very active in participating in the years-long policy process, which led to a truly universal health system for all people in Thailand. You don't have to make a contribution at all. And the importance of that example is that the informal workers were built into the policy process and weren't just added on sort of right at the end with no recognition given to what their particular needs would be. The other example which easily comes to mind is the efforts 
of waste workers through their cooperatives in Brazil expressing the demands for better social protection services. There's a process underway of greater recognition. There's clearly the council political processes underway, which are threatening some of the very ordinary extension of social protection within Brazil, which has become a worldwide example of good coverage. I think the fields where you'll find examples are in the provision of child care, the victories in a number of cities in Latin America, and particularly in Colombia, on cities, on a city level, municipalities signing up for more responsibility for the security of informal workers who are using municipal space. And this has got particular reference to the waste workers there. Which are the key trends we should be attentive to, do you think, Francie? I think, Cyrus, at the broadest level, it would be watching carefully the development of the very positive moves for this thing called the global social floor, which comes out of the ILO as well as United Nations agencies, and make sure that informal workers and their needs are absolutely consistently addressed in there rather than being a little sort of and all women vulnerable workers as well as informal workers just sort of an add-on but they're, they're taken as real workers so that sort of general level of getting it into the development discourse that informal work is real work I think that within that the same point applies in the debates at national level within global social flaws. A number of countries have taken on a commitment to global social flaws and to try and, it's almost in a sense, police and monitor and try and insert at international level discourses the specific needs of informal workers. And this can be done partly through the alliances, um, global alliances of, of home workers, of domestic workers, construction workers, street vendors and market workers. Thank you very much, Francie. We will leave links to some publications related to social protection and informal economy debate in the description of this episode. If you want to learn more information about uh, informal economy and social protection, please visit us at our website www.wego.org. That's w-i-e-g-o.org, where you can download our studies, policy briefs, and read our blog articles. And don't forget to follow Wego on Twitter and on Facebook to get the most updated news and publications on informal economy. See you next month. <laughs>